I would like to uh, add just to what Mr. Craig said to thank you for coming and also to uh, thank Mr. Craig, who's not able to do so as our uh, principal of the seminary, of what I remember uh, of school days. The school principal was someone to be feared by all the pupils. And I think Mr. Craig has far more trouble with the lecturers than he does with the students in the seminary. So uh, we are appreciative of the work that is done, despite appearances to the contrary, Mr. Craig. If we turn then uh, to Psalm number 11. And although this is uh, a lecture, the thoughts are based around uh, the words of verse 4 and 5. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. And so on. I would like to look with you this evening at one of the attributes of God. That is his justice. The justice of God of itself is not hard to understand. That God is forever totally unchangeably just. That everything he does is just, upright, moral, ethical, righteous, good. Nothing that he does then is ever less than an act of justice. Everything you know that God does must be an act of justice. Whatever that is, whether it is when he created the world, an act of justice. When he permitted the fall, likewise. When he cursed the serpent. When he banished Adam and Eve. When he enacted the curse of death upon all Adam's children. When he allows fearful earthquakes and floods as we have seen in recent days. Natural disasters so called. Even the flood in the days of Noah. Acts of justice. But even at the, if you like, more personalized, localized level. When lovely people, people we like and enjoy their company and we see them suffer, suffer greatly at times. God is not unjust in these things, in the ordering of his providence and the outworking of his decree. If you look at the day the Son of God in our nature suffered and died upon the cross. Was God unjust then? No. When Stephen. Faithful Stephen was stoned. Martyred. Was God unjust? What about when the Saviour himself. Pardoned the thief on the cross beside him. When he today still pardons sinners by his grace. There is no injustice with him. And likewise when unbelievers are at their death condemned to hell forever. His justice is in everything and it's everywhere. 
It is as much in pardon as it is in punishment. And so this is not merely, if you like, a, a doctrinal address. It is that, I hope, but it is also something that matters to every one of us every day of our lives. And yet you will know that the justice of God is constantly being questioned. In our schools and universities, it is attacked directly and denied. But also, again, closer to home, in our hearts, even under our roofs, particularly when we are struggling, when we cannot understand the events of our lives as they unfold before us, or those of our loved ones. How can God allow this? How can that be just? How can that square with what I understand the Bible teaches of a God who is righteous? Well, our aim then is to try to understand this better tonight. If we are going to speak, though, about the justice of God, then we need to take note of God's justice in action amongst mankind as our chief example. This is what is most relevant to us. He is, of course, just of himself, and there's a whole field and many sermons or lectures to consider on that. He is, he is just amongst the other uh, creatures. He is just amongst angels and just amongst devils. He is just in the created order of beasts and birds and beetles. But our chief area for study is God's justice towards men. So let us see then, first of all, how God gives us justice. How God gives us justice. And he does this in the laws that we receive from him. It's sometimes called his legislative justice. Consider how justice works in a country, in a nation. There are two pillars of justice at work in a nation, at least in a nation that is functioning reasonably uh, properly. There is the king who makes laws, it may be delegated as in our case to a um, parliament. And then there are the judges who administer the king's justice, who use that as their plumb line either to exonerate the innocent or to punish the guilty. And so we can see that justice involves law making and law applying. And we can follow that distinction with regard to God's justice. In fact, that distinction, of course, originates in God's justice. So then, first of all, God legislates. He gives us justice. He gives us laws. And these laws are laws that are suited to our position and to our circumstance and to our nature. We are not given the laws of angels and they are not given the laws of men. He has laws for the wind and the waves that obey him, the tides and the moon. He has laws for the beasts and the stars. Psalm 148 calls on the sun and moon to praise God for these things. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. The water's been given its boundary, its law, 
dominion. But man has been given laws that are fitted for our constitution, our makeup. We are given laws that cover all the great areas of life. We are given laws for our relationship to God and laws for our relationship to our fellow men. We are even given laws suitable to our position as sinners. Laws that are there to protect us from temptation. Laws that are there to recover us from damnation and guide us in obedience. And we can think of these laws in two ways. There is the law of works that has been given to us. Do this and live. We sometimes call it the covenant of works. That didn't originate from man. It came from God. God gave it to man. As a covenant of life, our confession calls it. And then there's the law of grace, we might say. Believe and live. The covenant of grace. The law of the gospel. These two great laws are suited for all men everywhere. No one who will ever find, who will ever live, will find these laws an irrelevance to them. Will find that they are somehow living outside of the scope of these laws. God gives laws to men. Now, we might question, at least in human terms, just because laws are given does not mean that these laws are necessarily binding. Our legislator legislator could demand that we disown Christ. That cannot be a binding law. It does demand that we refuse to apply biblical discipline to our children. That also cannot be binding. The giving of a law of itself does not prove that that law is binding. Now it's different with God, he said, of course. He never gives bad laws and his authority is unquestionable in all things. So yes, God has given us laws and they are suitable enough for all men. But are we bound by them? Well, in short, yes, of course we are. Proverbs 16, 4 The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. We are under obligation, therefore, as creatures to obey their creator, to obey his laws. He is the potter, we are the clay. We have no right to cast off his cords, as we sung of in Psalm 2, as the wicked try to do. But we say, surely as sinners, though we cannot keep this law of works, as fallen and depraved souls. We cannot keep the law of grace either of ourselves. We have neither the will nor the ability to obey. This is true. We do not have these things. But to return to an analogy of the king making laws for the subjects. The laws are good laws, the kingly laws are moral. Can the people simply cast them off? Because they find them too hard to keep. Will that exempt them from justice? Will that be a reason not to be considered as under the king's jurisdiction? Surely not. Especially if it turns out the reason they can't keep these king's laws is not because of anything that's wrong with the law, but it's their own fault. Imagine they cannot pay the king's taxes, not because the tax is ridiculously high, 
but because they have chosen to waste their wealth on gambling, on a dissolute life. Will the king's taxman mark them as exempt, unable to pay, therefore exempted? Not at all. Just because you have not the ability does not mean you do not have the responsibility. Man is obliged to all the laws that God chooses to give to us. And so God gives us justice by giving us laws that are suited to our position. The law of works fits us as creatures. The law of faith fits us as sinners. God gives justice. Secondly, God administers justice. There is a second string to the bow of divine justice. Not only is justice legislated, it must be administered. Not only are laws made, they are to be enforced. And according to Romans 2 and 6, so God will render to every man according to his deeds. He will administer justice. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. God gives to us the due wage from the laws that he has given to us. Because God is just, this may be a reward for law-keeping. Or it may be a punishment for law-breaking. So the Bible tells us that earthly lawmakers do this too. They will reward men and women for law-keeping and they will punish men and women for law-breaking. 1 Peter 2, 3 Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. God administers justice. Notice the imagery of the psalm here. That's why we chose this passage. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord is on his throne. What is a throne? It is a place where the king's laws are made. Where they are sent out from. But it is also the seat of the judge. There his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Notice then that he applies justice. And he does so to the wicked and to the righteous equally. Verse 5, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked... And him that violence loveth violence, his soul hateth. He rains fire and brimstone upon the wicked. In verse 6. The righteous Lord loves righteousness. So the Lord looks and notes and weighs the actions of us all according to his laws. And then he rewards us for obedience if there's any found. And he punishes us for disobedience. It is, in that regard, simple justice. But it is holy justice. It is perfect justice, inescapable justice. Now we know that God administers his justice according to 
these two principles, the law of works, the law of faith. What will God's verdict be under these laws? Under the law of works, what is God's verdict? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Galatians 3, verse 22, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. By that law, then, we are all liable to punishment. We are all universally guilty by the law of works that God has given to us. And God is enforcing. What about the other law, the law of grace, the law of faith, we might say? Here is a different verdict. For all who believe, for all who sinned, there is condemnation under the law of works. But for all who believe, there is, well let us read it, John 3.15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This then is a conditional verdict, you might say, dependent on the presence of faith in the sinner. But it's wonderfully clear. For all who possess faith, they shall in no wise perish does depend upon the presence of faith God-given through faith in Christ there is now therefore no condemnation to them that believe now how can these two things be there by the law of works we are all condemned by the law of grace there is pardon for the faithful well, here we get to one of the most precious truths of God's justice, which is its allowance for a substitute. God's justice condemns us for our sins. But before executing the sentence of condemnation against us, the justice of God, as it were, will stand to ask, is there anyone who will take the place? Is there a substitute who will stand for the sinner? Anyone who will take their guilt upon themselves for them? And for those who have placed their hope and their heart into the hands and care of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ rises gladly. And he takes that condemnation to himself. And he stands as substitute for every one of his people. And God then justly pardons the believer, the one for whom the substitute has risen. It is not an exception to his justice. It is the greatest feature of his justice. And we'll come back to it more in a moment. It deserves much more of our time. This is how God administers his justice. He administers it by the law of works, all who sin are condemned. And by the law of faith, all who believe are acquitted. What happens then? Is it, is it just a verdict? What are the consequences of God's justice? Well, that takes us to our third point. 
God demonstrates justice. We need to move into, if you like, the the post-verdict part of the justice of God. What happens in that context? We've had a case not too long ago in our own country of a man who was acquitted after, I think it was 17 years in jail. And there's a national conversation as well about how we should respond to this. How does God deal with us to demonstrate his justice? Well, let's consider again, using these two paradigms, as you like, under the law of works. Under the law of works, the moral law, God issues both temporal punishments and eternal punishments. Take, for example, the thief. God may use the civil magistrate to punish the thief for his crime. He could be sentenced in our country, let's say, three, four years, maybe a bit longer if he has previous convictions. That is man's justice, but it is also the magistrate acting under the authority of God that is given to the magistrate in that situation and for that purpose. He is not holding the sword in vain for the punishment of evildoers. There is a temporal punishment. So too for the child who disobeys their parent. He or she is either spanked or or rowed or, or denied some privilege or given extra chores depending on what it is that they've done. Temporal punishments. uh, Parents, again, exercising God-delegated authority. But also, the consequence of the fall mean that we all always live with the consequences of sin. Death. We are all always dying. We have the sentence of death upon us. Our breaths are counted, our days are numbered. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. All the suffering and pain that goes along with living under the sentence of death is part of the justice of God and the application of it and the demonstration of it. And so the sinner dies, being guilty of sin. Being guilty of sin, that sinner is also doomed cast out of the presence of God forever there is no faith in them if they have no substitute hell is God demonstrating his own perfect divine justice hell exists because God is just so the law of works will show and demonstrate the justice of God But the greatest demonstration of the justice of God as punishment is in fact under the law of faith, we might say. It is in the punishment of Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Because unless we understand the cross as an act of God's justice, then we have an unjust God. Unless we grasp that Golgotha was the theatre of a justice far higher than the court of Pilate or Herod or the high priest that condemned him, then we have no reason to hope in the cross of Christ. The cross is the administration of justice for the guilty being poured out upon their substitute. How we praise God for that justice. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced 
the most fierce wrath of God due against us for our sins. It was justice that was happening there. It was a sword spoken of in the prophet Zechariah called to awake against the shepherd. The sword of the justice of God. If you are able to dare as it were to consider what hell must be like for the guilty peer into these hours of the forsakenness and the darkness and the agonies that Christ endured upon the cross but with this great difference whereas Christ could exhaust the punishment for us we could never have exhausted ourselves Well, as Christ could cry out at the end, it is finished. We would never get to the end and could only ever cry out, I am finished. I am ruined under the justice of God. I am eternally damned. I can never escape under the justice of God. If ever you or I begin to fall under its darkest shadow, and we will never ever see the light again. Now the value of Christ's suffering and his death is infinitely greater than the value of a lost soul in hell because of who Christ is. And so he is able to take on the punishment and bear the punishment for all his people. So every blow to his face, every nail in his hands, every thorn wounding his head, all the agonies of the cross, and especially those of the darkness and the forsakenness, are they are the actions of the justice of God exercised against the guilt of condemned sinners. And God's justice has been demonstrated to the full without reservation, but upon our substitute. Such are the punishments of God under the law. Both under the law of works and under the law of faith, we might say. <coughs> this is one part of justice and action. One part of justice and action, remember we saw, was the punishment of the evildoers, punishment of guilt. But as God punishes by his law the guilty, we also have to say he rewards the innocent and the obedient. Consider again the rewards of God's law, the rewards of the law of work. Sometimes even sinners will seek to conform their lives in some way to the laws of God. And God gives temporal blessings and rewards where this is done. When a sinner lives an, an upright, decent, moral sort of life. Where he is faithful to his wife. Where he provides for his family. God often grants such a man the blessings of a loving home. Often grants to him the blessings of children. Even earthly happiness. This does not change God's verdict against the man. But these are temporal rewards for external obedience. God gave favours 
even to King Ahab, for an outward repentance. It may have been the same for many in Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah. It seems to have been the same under the preaching of John the Baptist, yea, even Christ himself. Many were healed, but not saved. Fed, but not forgiven. Blessed, but not redeemed. There was only one of the ten who returned to give thanks. So a nation, even, that honors God will be exalted, even if not the whole population are saved. This too is God's justice, temporal blessings for temporal obedience. But if God gives temporary blessings for outward obedience, then he also gives gracious rewards for gracious obedience. How much better? That is to say the Christian, who is still a sinner, who is still struggling with indwelling sin, nonetheless now walking by faith and not by sight, that Christian is given the benefits, the blessings, the riches of spiritual comfort. That soul is given the feeding of the truth of God. The Christian benefits from the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The Christian benefits from the comfort of the work of the Spirit in his heart, from the adoption of sons and the sense of the, the fatherliness of God towards him, the brotherliness of Christ, from being in fact in union and wed to Christ and that experience of Christ's love to you and even the response of your love to him. Christian benefits from being upheld Sometimes even ways doesn't realize or notice against temptation. Being delivered sometimes from the snares of sin. I wonder how did we escape that snare Satan seemed to have set at a perfect trap for us. And like a, a bird, I, my soul has escaped away out of the fowler snare. We are given the blessing of the company of saints. As we rejoice to see you, brothers and sisters in Christ amongst us here tonight. These are some of the rewards of the law of faith, if you like. They are the acts of the justice of God, who delights to shower his people with blessings. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. There's nothing unrighteous in what he does in giving us these favours. His countenance doth behold the upright. He still sends trials, verse 5. It's a trial of the righteous. But he never acts with injustice. He never forgets the justice of his law of faith. He delights to uphold it. Lamentations 3.33 For he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Now all these blessings are not earned blessings by the law of works. Our righteousness are not filthy rags. They come from the law of grace. They are the rewards of faith. They are the blessings of evangelical obedience, that keeping of God's will, that walking closely with him, that is the privilege and blessing of the believer alone, to which he says, all is of grace to me. And the reason that we are then liberated from the law of works is, of course, because 
another has kept that law for us. And he kept it perfectly. And if he kept it perfectly, then where are his rewards? If we are given such blessings by the rewards of faith, if you like, then what rewards are given to Christ who kept the law to perfection? Consider the rewards of Christ in the light of the justice of God. It's a sheer beautiful light. The reward of his life. The resurrection. This was the reward of his obedience. And such a life, an endless life, because he did not sin. That's what he sued for, isn't it? And pursued in his prayers from the cross that his darling life would be restored to him. It was given gladly. God is just. But even we might say, as well as that, on top of that, his ascension, he also merited. Not only life, but the reward of his exaltation to the right hand of his Father. That place and spot reserved for the Redeemer of God's elect, who had trodden the winepress alone, who had suffered the afflictions of this life and the rejection of his own people and the outrage, as it were, of his earthly condemnation as a criminal upon the cross. He was found not worthy to live by men, was exalted above the angels, by the justice of God. He who was mockingly given a reed as a scepter and a ring of thorns as a crown and a purple robe as royal garments was exalted and ascended and was placed upon the throne of the universe and robed with light that is unapproachable. Isaiah in his famous 53rd chapter says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. It is a reward of his obedience. But the greatest treasure to Christ himself of his reward. A reward issued by the justice of God was a people for himself. He shall see his seed. He has given sinners into his hand because he's redeemed them. Justice will not interfere. Justice, in fact, is ushering them into his hand. He has bought them, blood bought them. They are his and his forever. They are his to love and they are his to rule. They are his to teach and his to intercede for. Christ Jesus has given all the rewards of obedience, both to the, the law of works and the law of faith, both to the covenant of works and the covenant of, of uh, grace. 
He is the fulfillment of all the laws of God. He is therefore eminently, evidently, entirely entitled to these blessings. It is not a matter of doing him a favor. It is a matter of justice. Our Savior can therefore demand the justice of God. He can demand his own vindication at the judgment day. He can demand the casting out of Satan. He can demand the retreating of the frontiers of the kingdom of darkness at the will of Christ. He can demand, by a matter of justice, the sending of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost into his church to stay with them for all of time. He can demand the ingathering of sinners to salvation by his blood. And he can demand the safe protection of his church such that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. These are the rewards of his obedience. It's a matter of justice. God is just. He loves justice. He loves righteousness. He will not refuse the claims of righteousness. And how the Savior delights in pressing the claims of righteousness for his people. God demonstrates his justice. Briefly and in closing, fourthly, God magnifies his justice. John Brown of Haddington has a book on the Catechism. And well, if you do go looking for it, it's worth looking for. We also find where a lot of the material has just come from tonight. But there he asks two closing questions on this topic of the justice of God. How is the justice of God sweet to believers? Is his first question. How is the justice of God sweet to believers? He says it secures to them, however unworthy, all the blessings which Christ hath purchased for them. 1 John 1 9, he is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a wonderful thought. That by Christ. The very justice of God. Becomes sweet to us. He magnifies it. justice of God is our comfort because you are pronounced free how is the justice of God made sweet to the believer but he also has a solemn second question how is the justice of God made terrible to the wicked? And he answers that the justice of God is terrible to the wicked because it binds God to pursue them with his everlasting wrath. If God were not just, 
men might have a hope of escaping hell. But because God is just, that hope, if it is not found in Christ, cannot be found anywhere. Look again at our text. In verses 5 and 6, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that violence, that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Oh, friends, what is the justice of God to you this evening? Is it sweet or is it a terror to your soul? May he bless his word. Let us pray. O our God, we do thank thee that thou art the great God of justice, that thou art always the God of justice, and that there is no conflict between the justice of God and the mercy of God between the goodness of God and the justice of God, between the love of God and the justice of God, between the saving of sinners and the justice of God, between the cross of Christ and the justice of God. Oh, how we thank thee that thou dost magnify thy justice through all that Christ has done. And may we love him more fervently than ever, when we think on these things. And may we be more loving too. To our fellow man. Who is on the wrong side of the justice of God. Without Christ in the world. Teach us Lord we pray thee. To love thee. And to love man. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, we'll sing in conclusion the words of our psalm, psalm number 11. Psalm number 11, singing the whole psalm to the chief musician, a psalm of David. I in the Lord do put my trust. How is it then that ye say to my soul, flee as a bird unto your mountain high? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, their shafts, their on string they fit, that those who upright are in heart they privily may hit, if the foundations be destroyed. What hath the righteous done? God in his holy temple is. In heaven is his throne. And so on to the end of Psalm 11. I in the Lord do put my trust. I in the Lord do put my trust.
this evening is it not good to know that God is a just God and a saviour and we rejoice in these things that uh, because he is just our salvation in Christ is secure and uh, we're thankful for that reminder this evening we trust the Lord will follow it with his blessing I'd like to thank you all for the presence and your ongoing prayers. We know that these will continue. I express the thanks of the lecturers to the um, Deacon's Court and congregation here at West Hill um, for their help they provide for us. They um, ensure we're fed and looked after and provide beds for those in beds. We do appreciate these things. We know it's uh, a lot of work that some people have and we wish to record our gratitude for the use of the building here and for the way in which we're helped. Now, after the uh, benediction, there will be tea uh, for those and the time of fellowship for those who are able to be behind. And finally, um, as I mentioned earlier, the new, the latest edition of the Seminary Journal is available and at a special price of £5. For, um, for copy and um, if you make your payment to me or Mr Kelly uh, and we'll sort things out but they're there if you want to take some away for your congregation then there are plenty of copies available so there is last year's journal there's some copy left of that there's a new one out for £5 each let's uh, 
close by asking a blessing on the food and being dismissed with a benediction. We ask, O Lord, that thou wouldst receive our thanks for all thy goodness. We rejoice that thou art good and that thou art just. What a dreadful world it would be if there were no justice, if thou art not just. But because thou art just, thou art wholly reliable. And the salvation of thy people is sure, because thou didst cause that sort of justice to fall upon the Saviour. We pray for grace that we might walk in thy ways, that we might keep thy commandments gladly, knowing that they are just and good, and that we would ever rejoice in thee, the one who art a just God and a Saviour. Follow with thy blessing what we have done this evening, and that each one of us would be blessed by thee, that we would grow in grace and in knowledge of the truth, and that thy blessing would be upon the work of the seminary in this new session. So go before us for the sake of thy dear Son, we pray. And now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen.